Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. In less than one month I'll be driving down to CrimeCon 23 in Orlando, Florida. I hope some of you can make the trip and I can meet you face to face. I'm looking forward to that opportunity and a chance for me to meet and collaborate with some other podcasters and learn more about the business. But speaking of the business, if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. On March 27, 1877, a stagecoach headed out of the gold-laden Black Hills bound for Cheyenne, Wyoming, was attacked by a gang of robbers just outside Deadwood, South Dakota. The coach driver, a young man named Johnny Slaughter, was the son of Cheyenne's city marshal and was shot dead for refusing to stop the coach and allow its occupants to be robbed of their valuable possessions. The bold and cowardly attack marked a change in stagecoach policy and two armored stagecoaches with steel plating on their walls, gun ports, and a lockbox bolted to the floor were designed and put into service. One was named after Johnny, and the other was named after the USS Monitor, one of the first all-metal armored ships in history. The era of armored money transportation had begun. It took less than a year for a bold gang of robbers to attack one of the stagecoaches and successfully steal a fortune in gold bars that had been smelted from one of the most prosperous gold mines in the Black Hills. The bars were on their way to the more civilized Cheyenne, Wyoming. With the addition of some jewelry, gems, and cash, the lockbox contained over $27,000 in valuables, equivalent to around $600,000 today. Lame Johnny and his gang successfully robbed the armored coach in what is regarded as the first armored cash robbery in America. Over the next 150 years, advances in transportation, armor, and technology have improved armored valuable transportation, but there have been numerous criminals willing to risk their lives and time in prison to steal a life-changing amount of money. Several large armored transportation companies became big names in the industry, with the leaders being Brinks, Loomis, Garda, and Dunbar. In 1997, the last name on that list would experience a robbery on a scale only seen a couple times in the history of the United States. Their crime would become to be known as the Dunbar Depot robbery. In 1997, cash was still king for payment in America. I worked in retail at this time, and the store I worked at didn't even have an electronic credit card machine yet. If someone paid with a credit card, we would place the credit card in a device, put a pre-made three paper thick form on the top, slide a large press across the top of it, and the three pieces of paper would be stamped with the impression from the credit card with the credit card owner's name and credit card number on it. They would sign the form, agreeing to have the store charge their card at a later time, and receive one copy of the form while another was kept at the store and the final one was sent to the corporate billing to be processed. Paying via check or cash was much easier 
and it was not uncommon to do the vast majority of transactions each day via cash. Because cash was the primary source of purchasing, especially for purchases under $50, there was a lot of paper currency in circulation and people needed greater access to it on a regular basis. ATMs and banks needed to be stocked with cash so people could withdraw money from their accounts and use it for everyday purchases, and those ATMs and banks needed cash deliveries many times a week. The job of delivering the cash to the banks and the ATMs fell to specially trained and trusted armored car drivers for companies such as Brinks and Dunbar. The larger the city, the larger the need for cash. The economy was booming in America in the late 90s, and cities such as Los Angeles were filled with celebrities and tourists that liked to spend money on things such as overpriced retail. The Los Angeles area became a mecca for high-stakes cash robberies such as the North Hollywood shootout covered in episode 29 of True Blue Crime. That major crime occurred in 1997, and that same year, a different type of robbery would result in one of the largest cash heists in U.S. history. So before we get into the specifics, uh, as I mentioned, as I normally do, I try to get people to go back in time to the period that these crimes are occurring. I think that makes for a better understanding of, of just the differences between now and then. I understand this was roughly 25 years ago, so it's not going back that far in history, but it's going back far enough uh, that things such as the internet, while it was prevalent, it was, it was definitely not anything like it is now. Uh, the, I worked at a bookstore, that's the retail that I worked at, and we didn't even have a system that could tell us how many of the copies of books were at the other franchise bookstores. So we're, we're talking about a, a time in which communication is limited because the internet's not what it is now. We're talking about a time when people weren't using credit cards. I mentioned under $50. I think a lot of purchases, high-end purchases, if you were going to buy an appliance or a TV or something, uh, a lot of people still paid with checks back in the day for those things. And credit cards did exist. It's just that people didn't use them for everyday purchases. I hardly carry cash on me anymore except a, a small amount for some type of an emergency situation. Even if I'm paying for a loaf of bread at the gas station, I'm using my credit card. Back in 1997, it would be almost unheard of for somebody to use their credit card to purchase, say, a loaf of bread. Whereas now, um, I still I have a part-time job in retail right now that I'm just helping a, a buddy out at his store and it almost becomes the oddity when somebody pays in cash for something. It does happen still, but it's much more rare to see somebody. I mean, I would say that 90% of the transactions are credit card and about 10% of them are cash and nobody pays with check anymore. So again, it's just, just a different type of economy, a different style of money payment. So cash needed to be more readily available back in 1997 because that was just the means in which people purchased the majority of their transactions. And it didn't mean that everybody was walking around with $400 of cash in their, in their wallet or, or their purse. But if you needed to go and run some errands, the first place you might go is the ATM and withdraw 
40, 60, 80, 100 dollars in cash so you can pay for your purchases as you do run around do errands and again the ATMs needed to be fully stocked so these armored car companies between the banks and these ATMs they were responsible for transporting a large amount of cash the same time I was working summers for an amusement park in the area and I worked out at this mini golf course go-karts that was attached to the, to the amusement it wasn't part of the the main area of the amusement park it was kind of off to the side so you didn't have to pay for entrance to the amusement park to get into this uh, extra area but a lot of people would make it a, a side trip going to the amusement park and then they could go do go-karts mini golf uh, bumper boats as just kind of a part of their day they'd come out and stop but cash was so king that it wasn't uncommon for myself when I was counting money at the end of the day after a busy weekend, 4th of July weekend, or just a really nice weather weekend here in a summer in Minnesota, that I'd be carrying somewhere in the realm of $100,000 or more in a backpack. I'd get a, a, a security ride but in a car, but back to our cash control, which was a huge operation back in the late 90s at this amusement park is almost everybody paid with cash for everything whether to be play the carnival style games the the food vendors the retail stores in the amusement park uh, as i said the area that i worked everybody was buying their tickets for mini golf or go-karts or bumper boats in cash so I mean, just the amount of cash that was moving through america at this point is is going to be one of the reasons why this heist is such a big heist. And in 1997, Alan Pace III was a 32-year-old employee with Dunbar Armored and would become the mastermind of this high-yielding crime. He worked as a safety inspector at the Dunbar Depot, a local HQ for the company operations in the Los Angeles area. Large sums of cash were delivered to the depot and then broken down into shipments for bound for various banks, ATMs, and businesses in the area. Allen was one of the select number of people in Los Angeles that knew the layout of the depot to include the floor plan, building security features including cameras and locked doors, the guard rotation schedule, and the operations of the cash delivery and the vehicles. His plan called for a complete hostile takeover of the depot, which was the only way he could ensure the ability to remove a large amount of cash from the storage area without interruption. While staffing inside the depot was kept somewhat low to cut costs and limit the number of people who had access or knowledge of the cash operation, there were enough employees working that a team of criminals would be needed to execute the takeover. And what I mean by that is this, this depot is basically a, a, a small fortress where all of the cash for the uh, deliveries that these armored vehicles are going to make throughout the day. They, they have to have a central location to either bring cash from banks back to and then also to dis distribute cash going out to these banks or ATMs. And so this depot was basically a, like I said, a fortress with a garage door that the armored vehicles would come into where they could be backed up to a loading dock filled with their cash for their delivery and then the, the cash delivery would occur. So you don't want to have a ton of people working here or, or people that you don't need to be working, a ton of extra guards or whatever it might be, because those are all people that you have to worry could 
attempt to do an inside job robbery, but at the same time, you can't just have a couple people working when you've got a large amount of cash on hand. So one person is not going to be able to do a hostile takeover. There's just there's too many employees for one person, but it, it's not like there's 50 employees at all times and you're going to need this team of 100 guys in order to do this hostile takeover. So Alan's going to find a medium-sized team of criminals, but he needs to be able to trust them with a job of this magnitude. And that's not going to be easy for Alan, but he ultimately convinced five friends he'd known since childhood to join his operation. They were 29-year-old Eric Boyd of Buena Park, California, 27-year-old Eugene Lamar Hill Jr. of Belfort, California, 29-year-old Freddie McCrary Jr. of Arletta, California, 27-year-old Thomas Johnson of Las Vegas, Nevada, and 37-year-old Terry Brown Sr. of Los Angeles, California. Now, Allen not only had to trust these men to keep the planning of the crime secret before the actual robbery, he had to trust them to maintain their composure during the heist and maintain their secrecy and control their spending after the heist. It was a big risk to involve this many other suspects, but he needed a lot of guys and he believed he can trust them all. And this is one of the biggest things about criminals is obviously if you commit a job a a crime on your own the only person that can then screw up during the planning execution or after the crime is yourself if you tell the wrong person what you're going to do and word gets out and the, the crime is ruined that's on you if during the crime you decide to shoot somebody that's on you and if after the crime you go around buying high-end vehicles and and properties then the downfall or your capture is on you the more people that you involve the better chance that somebody's going to slip up before the crime or they're going to do something stupid during the crime like shoot and kill somebody that that turns it from an armed robbery into a murder in which you're all responsible for or afterwards all it takes is one person to slip up and and spend too much money or tell somebody or something along those lines and and suddenly all of you are caught so he has to walk this fine line between having too few guys to do the job or too many guys and somebody slips up and alan's job at the depot was rather mundane he was charged with making sure the depot was safely operating from day to day so his tasks included checking fire extinguishers in the building and the vehicles and ensuring other safety protocols were followed and and just like any other job you've got all these OSHA requirements federal OSHA state OSHA that's you know, requires the fire extinguishers to be checked and, and charged on a regular basis uh, sprinkler systems be checked and and this is a semi-industrial job because of all the vehicles Uh, so his his job is basically just making sure they don't get in trouble with OSHA for any violations of safety protocols and while his job did give him access to some sensitive areas in the depot in order to properly plan the job he needed to push the limitations of his clearance from time to time this caught up to him and the day before the robbery management fired him after they determined he had been caught tampering with the vehicles And this is a time before digital cameras and cell phones. So as he's trying to plan this robbery, again, he's got to push the limitation of what looks suspicious. If anybody taking photos inside this facility is going to look suspicious, 
but if he's doing anything, taking photos, drawing out maps, or in this case, he's he's messing with parts of the vehicle that he normally shouldn't be messing with. This company, they're, they're so security-minded that if they have any question as to whether or not somebody might be trying to plan a, a robbery or a theft, it's likely that they're just going to fire first and then ask questions second. Now, the loss of his job on the day before the planned robbery was a major hurdle for his plan. Law enforcement looks especially hard at recently fired employees when a robbery occurs, and his termination would now be only one day before the robbery. And this is the case anytime a robbery occurs, not just a armored car depot like this or a bank. Uh, those are just especially the case that it's often an inside job because it's difficult for somebody from the outside to gain access to these facilities. Like I said, it's, they're locked up like fortresses. But when a gas station gets robbed, uh, a lot of the times they'll go and look at, did anybody get fired within the past few months or a fast food place? It's just people are familiar. There's a revenge angle. Oftentimes if they get fired, they, they know how, where the safe is. They know the procedures. They know when the safe gets left open. So because of that knowledge, because of that revenge factor, they often look at these recently terminated employees. And it wasn't that Alan was planning on getting terminated the day before. He, his plan involved him still working there to, to look less suspicious, but him and his crew have invested too much time into the plan heist to back out now. And they had already accounted for Alan being a potential suspect, even if he was still employed by Dunbar, and he had an airtight alibi built in for the night of the robbery. The entire crew attended a Friday night party at the home of one of their longtime friends. As most of the crew had been childhood friends with Alan, it would make sense that all members of the crew would attend this party, and therefore there would be plenty of eyewitnesses that put them at the party during the time frame of the robbery. Alan had purposely not told his crew the scale of the robbery they would be committing. Most of them likely dreamed about being able to take somewhere in the ballpark of 500,000 to a million that would be split six ways. So they were each hoping probably for around a $100,000 to $200,000 payday. This would have been a good amount of money in 1997, but not something they were likely to brag about in advance or change their lifestyle drastically before getting paid. And, and this is important because if you're, we're gonna find out this is going to be a very large scale robbery. And Alan likely knows how much cash roughly they're gonna score from this heist. And if he starts telling these guys in advance what their cut of this large heist is gonna be, He's worried that they're going to change their lifestyle before they even commit this, this robbery. They're going to buy things they can't afford. They're going to start dating multiple women and taking them to fancy places on no real income in their regular lives. And that's all going to be stuff that when investigators look at potential suspects, if they see a change in behavior before the crime even occurs, it's they're going to look like even stronger suspects. So he doesn't tell them how much they're going to actually score on this this heist. As a result, he's hoping that they just are looking for a nice payday and are willing to, to keep their mouths shut about it. And the plan involved them staying at the party for a couple of hours. The crew made sure to talk to as many people as they could, establishing a long list of partygoers that would serve as their alibis for that evening. 
In the middle of the bash, at a prearranged time, the crew all slipped out of the party together, changed into black clothing and black masks, and drove to the Dunbar Depot. An overnight crew was working at the depot, and because it was Friday night, the next day would not be a typical business day, the staffing was light. Alan used his personally issued work key, and this I couldn't find out if... I assume they would have made him turn in his key when they terminated him, but there are locksmiths that are willing to duplicate keys that they aren't supposed to if you pay them enough to do it. So it's possible that as part of his plan, just in case he got fired, he had a copy of this key made. And again, this is 1997. We, Not many places except for either high-scale companies or government buildings had electronic key swipes or anything along those lines now they all would because it's so much easier to track people coming through electronic door locks because each key fob has an identifier built into it it's more difficult to duplicate the electronic key fobs and you can turn off or turn on somebody's access with software so as soon as somebody's terminated from a job they can turn off that person's electronic key fob. Back in 1997, since this wasn't really a thing yet for most places, if you fired somebody, you may make them turn in their key, but it's not as if every time somebody got fired, you would change all of the locks in the building. So you would just hope that they didn't make a copy or, again, that they're not going to return anytime soon. I'm, I'm sure there was on a somewhat regular basis maybe once a year once every six months uh, the locks were changed but this is the day after he's terminated so even if there were plans to change the locks it likely wouldn't have occurred until the following week crew used alan's key to enter the depot alan and a few members of the crew took a path through the building to the lunchroom and this is a path that had been pre-planned by alan to avoid the monitored security cameras Armed with shotguns and handguns, they overpowered the limited staff as the men came into the lunchroom to take their evening break at 12.30 a.m. And so this is something where, especially if you work inside of what you believe to be a highly secure facility, sometimes people get very lax in their situational awareness and, and they follow a very strict schedule. So all of these guys, one by one, are going to get to the break room around 12.30 a.m. And basically, all Alan and his crew had to do was just wait inside. These guys walk through the door thinking they're gonna go on their lunch break. They're, again, not very situationally aware because they're inside this locked building with cameras. And it's very easy for Alan and the crew, they already have the drop on them when it comes to having guns aimed at them and stuff. They, these guys aren't going to react quickly enough to counter this this hostile takeover so eventually they're able to get the majority of the the staff secured uh, in the lunchroom area and then they're going to use the supervisor's key to probably access whatever areas that they still had to get into to maybe complete the hostile takeover and then they equipped themselves with handheld radios. They notified a member of the team who had been assigned to the role of driver to back a rented U-Haul into the depot and park in the loading area. The vault was left open on Friday nights, so after rushing the two vault guards and securing them, they were able to walk right into the vault. And it was something about because 
there was going to be a large amount of money moving in and out the next day. It was often they left the, the vault unlocked. I, to me, this definitely seems like a major oversight in terms of, of security. There's a reason you have the vault, and when, when we learn how much cash there is in this vault, I, it just absolutely shocked me that this company wouldn't have a policy that, and maybe they did and they just violated it, but that that vault was locked at all times. I, they purposely chose a time of the evening in which there wasn't going to be traffic going in and out. These overnight guards are basically there just to make sure what is going on doesn't happen, this, this hostile takeover uh, of the depot. From as far as I could tell, Again, they're not having trucks arriving and leaving at one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. So to me, the fact that the vault's left open is just, I don't know, it's asinine. But anyway, that's how, that's how it was. Alan knew this. So instead of having to somehow bypass uh, this, this bank vault that was in the building, they're able to walk right in there. From that point, the only thing that kept the cash cages secure were padlocks. So all the crew had to do was use bolt cutters and cut off the padlocks. And inside these cash cages were just stacks and stacks of cash. And Alan knew which ones were the stacks of $20 bills. So they targeted those. And and these $20 bills had been prepped for delivery to ATM. So it was easy for them to just grab them. They threw them onto metal carts and pushed these cash laden carts to the loading bay and threw the bills into the enclosed box on the back of the moving van. Uh, investigators would later say that the cash pile got so deep in the back of the truck that it formed a pile that would come up above a grown man's knees. And this is a 14 foot U-Haul truck. So this is not a small truck by any means so you're basically talking a a carpet of cash that's foot and a half two feet deep in the back of this u-haul and while the last of the cash was loaded up alan went around the depot and smashed the security cameras he used the supervisor's keys to access the vhs recording area and took the evening's videotapes again this is an area before for digital backups or sending data to the cloud. So with the tapes gone, there was no visual evidence of the crime. And again, just something that would be different now, most highly secure areas, whether they be banks or these cash depots or even people's home uh, security cameras, a lot of them, there's a digital copy of that uh, security footage, but that's stored on a hard drive maybe in the house or a server somewhere in the house or the building, but there's also a copy that's being sent remotely to a cloud somewhere where it's saved. So even if you remove the hard drive from the security system, there's still a copy of it out there somewhere. This is all well before then. So the only thing that that is capturing what's going on in the security cameras are these VHS tapes, the physical tapes themselves. So when Alan takes all these VHS tapes, investigators are not going to be able to see the robbery all they're going to have is the eyewitness testimony from the guards and the crew left after 30 minutes without firing a single shot or causing any serious harm to any of the staff while it would take the crew a while to count their haul in the end they made off with 18.9 million dollars in cash the equivalent of almost 36 million dollars today they drove to one of the crew members' apartments where they changed back into their party clothes and returned to the social gathering to further establish their alibi. 
Alcohol was freely flowing at the party, and Alan was hoping that the level of intoxication would make partygoers' concept of time fuzzy, and therefore no one would have noticed the hour or so that they had been absent. After the staff at the Dunbar Depot freed themselves, they called the police. Responding officers took statements, and L.A. robbery detectives contacted the FBI for assistance. They discovered the missing tapes and realized they had little to work with in terms of evidence of the crime. As investigators combed the scene, they found only one tiny clue was left behind, a shard of plastic from the taillight of a vehicle. The amber-colored fragment did not match the taillights of any of the company trucks, and it was believed that during the chaos of the robbery, someone backed the getaway vehicle into something in the loading bay area, causing the taillight to crack and depositing the plastic on the floor. The piece was sent to the FBI lab, and it was determined that it belonged to a taillight from a 14-foot-long U-Haul rental moving truck. But it couldn't be matched to any one specific truck, and there were thousands of those trucks in the United States, and they're extremely transient in nature. And so if you're not from America, or you haven't ever rented a U-Haul before, these U-Haul rental trucks, I believe they're all Arizona license plates. That's where U-Haul must have their headquarters, and that's where they... Uh, license all of their trucks and you can rent this truck for the day uh, rent it from a place use it to haul whatever you need to to make a move or to haul a large item from one spot to another and then return it back to the same u-haul rental place or some people use these for cross-country moves so you can do a one-way contract with u-haul where you're going to rent it say in this case in la and you're moving to Denver, Colorado. And so you don't want to drive from LA, Denver, Colorado in this move and then turn around and drive from Denver, Colorado back to LA in an empty moving truck just to re return this truck. So these these trucks will often be part of one-way moves where now that U-Haul is in the Denver area with the hope that at some point somebody from the Denver area is moving to LA and they shuffle these trucks around so that at any given time, this truck could be anywhere in the United States. So locating one 14-foot-long U-Haul truck without any specifics, no license plate, no VIN number, is going to be next to impossible. It's the proverbial needle in the haystack if there was a thousand haystacks in a field. So they are just going to know that the suspects used this 14-foot-long U-Haul truck, but they're not going to be able to track which actual truck was used. And with little in the way of physical evidence, a task force codenamed Dunrob was formed to investigate the crime. They kept the true amount taken a secret from the general public out of fear that the sensational amount would drive a media frenzy that would send the suspects deep underground for a long period of time. When speaking to the media about the heist, the task force only said that the amount was over a million dollars. They weren't lying, but no one would have guessed the total was almost 19 million. And so this is an important move on the part of the task force because, you know, we'd be talking now, it'd be somewhere in the realm of somebody stealing $36 million in a, in a single heist. That type of stuff gets spread out throughout the general public and talked about for months and months. The media latches on to the, the story and they keep covering it. They keep asking investigators about it. They keep doing news segments on it. And that's just going to drive the suspects to keep a lower profile for a longer period of time because they're going to feel like the heat's on them nonstop. Whereas if this is just, it was a cash job, they got 
uh, you know, a million dollars is still a lot of money. It's it's still a, a good cash robbery, but it wasn't uncommon for these banks or armored car robberies to be upwards of a million dollars. So if they treated it just like any other heist, the, the news media covers it quickly, then moves on. The general public pays attention to it for a day or two, and they move on. Nobody's talking about this huge $19 million robbery. They're just talking about a heist that occurred, and they go on with their with their lives. And the hope is that the suspects, thinking they're in the clear, start spending this money. Now, investigators formed a list of suspects almost immediately, and near the top of the list, if not at the top of the list, was Alan Pace III. Just as he has suspected, he was a top candidate for being involved in the robbery. He was questioned and gave his alibi, which was confirmed by task force members that located and questioned the party host and other attendees. And again, they are only going to be looking at Alan Pace III. They have no clue these other five guys are going to be involved. There's no link between Dunbar and these other five guys. So not only does Alan Pace have an alibi by partygoers, some of those partygoers the police are going to talk to are likely going to be members of the crew that it also benefits them to further Alan's alibi. And so it's one of those things where the investigators don't even know, likely they're talking to people that try to establish Alan's alibi that are also actual members of the crew. And despite the alibi, investigators still felt strongly that Allen was involved, and they sat back and monitored Allen and his known associates for any suspicious spending practices. The task force felt it was only a matter of time before one of them spent outside their means, and the investigators could gain some leverage on someone to drive the investigation forward. The crew waited six long months before they even attempted to launder the money. As they knew they were being watched closely, they hired an attorney and his office manager to help them move the cash into legitimate operations in which they could collect the money on the back end. They paid roughly $2 million of their proceeds for the help, and initially the scheme worked well. The lawyer and his office manager set up fictitious companies with the stolen cash covering upfront costs and then paid some of the crew as employees of the companies. The jobs even had W-2 forms that made their wages appear legitimate, despite the fact they weren't actually working for the company. So what they're doing is just creating a third party that isn't going to be looked at as closely by the police. For one, it's a lawyer, and some of these guys have criminal past, so it's not going to be completely odd that they would be meeting with a lawyer or have a lawyer. But that lawyer then is going to create kind of a an additional wall of padding away from the investigation as they're now the ones spending the money to set up these fictitious companies and then turn around and, and use money from these fictitious companies to pay the employees of the companies who are actually members of the crew. So it's a slow way for them to get access to this money, but it's a way to do it safely because if anybody looks at it and says, okay, well, how did you afford rent last month? Or how did you put a down payment on that vehicle or, or whatever it might be? It's like, well, here's I work, here's my W-2, it's a legitimate company, and nowhere they're going to be able to trace the money that they're making for this company back to the stolen money from the depot robbery. And for 18 months, they collected paychecks from these fake companies and hired friends and family to go to vehicle and real estate auctions and bid on vehicles and properties that could be paid for in stolen cash and then sold for what appeared to be legitimate and clean profit. So it's going to be a lot of work for them to launder this money, 
they've got to find ways to spend it in small increments that are not completely out of the realm of possibility and again they're using a, a, an additional party to separate so if the FBI and, and the task force is watching them it doesn't look like they're spending money and it's very difficult to follow the associates of Allen's associates as they're could have reasons for legitimately purchasing these vehicles but all this money is flowing in and out of the crew through these real estate vehicle transactions with a third party and when the money comes back eventually then they've got quote-unquote clean money a profit and they but again they're still not out spending it freely in which they're so that they don't get caught the crew also took several trips to nearby Vegas which helped them wash the money as they would buy chips at casinos or bet on sports with the stolen cash and then they they hopefully broke even with clean winnings and a lot of the times when you launder money you have to build in that it's, there's going to be expenses there's going to be loss because in reality you, other than equipment costs or any upfront cost that way most of this cash is pure profit but you do have to realize when you're washing that money there's going to be a loss in different you're gonna to have to pay some people for their assistance in washing the money in this case if you're gambling there's going to be some gambling losses there's going to be some winnings too but there's going to be some losses but eventually after you've purchased those chips with the stolen money the money then when you turn in those chips you're going to get clean cash back from the casino and the operation was going according to plan until one of the crew members, Eugene Hill, paid a real estate broker for one of the purchased properties in stacks of $20 bills with the Dunbar cash strap still on the bills. The broker was suspicious and not wanting to get caught up in the crime, he tipped off the task force. Investigators took a close look at Eugene and found a crucial clue. Eugene had rented a U-Haul the day before the robbery and returned it the day after. Task Force members arrested Eugene and he gave a full confession and named all five other members of the crew. When he was arrested, he had a stack of $20 bills with a wrapper from the Dunbar Depot still on the stack. When I say the Dunbar Depot, I just meant that whatever cash straps were on there were identified as being linked back. I don't think they actually had the paper straps around the, the stack of $20 bills saying Dunbar armored or anything. I think they would probably have just a similar style of that paper wrap that could be matched back to the same ones that were at the depot at the time of the robbery. So now the task force had the monumental task of locating, arresting, and interviewing the original crew members as well as all the associates they had used to launder the money. As more and more suspects were located, most of them offered to give confessions and testify for reduced prison sentences. A lot of the times this is where you're going to see it is accurate from movies and stuff where you literally have the, the web diagram on the board and you're going to find your ringleader. In this case, Eugene Hill probably recognized Alvin Pace III as the ringleader. Then you're going to draw your lines off that ringleader to the five other guys. And then you're going to draw ring, lines off of those five other guys out to all of their associates that they're using. And the task force is going to have to identify all of these people involved track them all down, stop them all, interview and interrogate them all to find out all the purchases they made, try to recover the stolen money. 
And while most people believe the associates of the crew knew they were laundering stolen money, many claimed ignorance to the source of the money and were either given light sentences or probation for testifying against the main crew members. The lawyer who helped launder the money was disbarred and both him and his office manager were sentenced to 2.5 years for money laundering. Of the original crew, only Alan Pace and Eric Boyd took their charges to trial. The remaining members pled guilty and received sentences of 8 to 10 years. Boyd was found guilty in court and because he had been one of the armed crew members and had a prior record, he was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Alan Pace took the stand during his trial and claimed he was framed by other members of the crew because he had slept with some of their wives or girlfriends. Their jury didn't buy it and found him guilty and the judge sentenced him to 24 years in prison. He started serving his time on April 23, 2001 and was released on October 1, 2020. The general public is now well aware of the total amount of cash taken from the heist. The FBI and Los Angeles police have confirmed that around $5 million worth of cash was accounted for via the purchase of vehicles, homes, and businesses during their attempts to launder the money. As much as $3 million was believed to be lost via gambling while washing the money, but officials believe around $10 million of the original stolen cash is still hidden somewhere. When asked about the missing money, the crew claims it was either lost via gambling or burned because they thought the money would be traced via serial numbers but many believe these are lies and the crew knows where the missing millions are located. A movie based off the crime was announced to the media in September of 2020, but as of yet, no trailer or release information exists. And as for this missing money, it's, it's one of those, I guess, newer urban folk legends that this $10 million cash is sitting out there. It's the, what I call the Breaking Bad syndrome where people believe these criminals and it may be true but whether they bury cash in, in barrels out in the desert whether they rent a storage locker somewhere and that cash is just sitting in the storage locker because it's cash that was going through a money transportation system it's possible that some of the bills serial numbers are well known so that if somebody were to find it it could be linked back to this this robbery and and cash currency changes over time so these $10 million and $20 bills from 1997 are going to look a lot different and have different markings and the years on them. So if somebody were to suddenly start paying in a large amount of $20 cash bills from 1997, it's going to look pretty suspicious at this point. It's, there's been enough time that has passed. Uh, so it, it is possible that, that the crew burned the money or that they were really bad at gambling and, and lost it all. I mean, Las Vegas wasn't built on people winning money, so there could be something to a lot of the, the $10 million actually not existing, but as I said, people do still believe there's at least a few million dollars of this money out there somewhere. And the Dunbar Depot robbery heist is one of the best planned and executed crimes in which not a single weapon was fired. It's highly unlikely that in the world of electronic transactions, anyone will ever be able to duplicate the crime, and the heist brings us back to an era where cash was king and suspects risked it all to score big. And I actually, I've got a whole bunch of these different heists lined up to cover at some point in the future. I try to spread them out so it's not just bank heists or armored car heists, but some of the biggest heists in history, this is I think only number 10 on the list, there's there's nine other heists that netted more money than this the, through various means and there's a couple that were about 
this amount around the same time frame but a lot of the other heists are foreign but I don't know that any of them are after say 2005 2006 and I think that's just because in the last 20 years everything's gone so electronic that it's going to be difficult to find a place that has that much cash piled up all at once anymore and then just the the technology again the the cloud the electronic key locks the a lot of these safes and vaults are on on timed releases where you have to wait until the the vault can be opened so i think it's become harder to commit a heist like this than it was in 1997 and as a result we probably won't see us see a, a heist this big at any point in the near future but that is the story of the dunbar depot robbery thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at trueblueprimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at trueblueprimeproductions on facebook and support me via patreon at trueblueprimeproductions that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye